go ahead and open in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come together. We ask that you lead and guide in our discussion as we start looking at the second chapter of Revelation and that you will bring out what you'd have us to learn. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter 2. We're starting on the letters to the seven churches. And this is something I developed a few years ago, um, which we'll pass out to everybody. Take one and pass it down. Take one and pass it down. The seven letters to the churches have, have a kind of a format together. It's each one starts with some description of Jesus. It tells him what he knows about the church. Then it says what he has against them for most of the churches. And also some encouragement for what they have and then some gift that he presents to them. So that's the format of, the, of this. And this kind of breaks it down for you, and we're going to cover those as we go along and expand upon them as we go through this. And uh, you've all seen the map. I'll get you a map also of the seven churches, uh, where they're located, so that you can kind of view that, uh, get that in, in a picture. All right, so we're going to read... We probably only get one, one letter per week for the next <laughs> weeks because there's a lot of information in each one of these. So we're going to start at verse 1 and read through verse 7. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know your works and your labor and your patience, and know how you cannot bear them which are evil. And you have tried them which say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars you have borne and have patience and for my name's sake have labored and have not fainted nevertheless i have somewhat against you because you have left your first love remember therefore whence you are fallen and repent and do the first works or else i will come unto you quickly and we remove your candlestick out of his place except you repent but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. All right. So we want to look a little bit at this uh, letter to the Ephesians. And remember we talked about last week just how people get up. There's many people who believe that these seven churches represent seven ages of the church. And... There's some truth to that because over the generations it's gone from a very hot, on-fire church and dwindled down. But I don't believe, as I said, I don't believe that that's true. I believe that they represent true churches with true problems. And in every age you've had churches, every age has had one, of the, one if not more of these churches in them. And they can also represent our own very lives. Okay, not just churches in general, but our own lives can be pictured by this. And, and, and if you look at this, you'll probably see times where you'll see yourself in some of, some of these churches, churches in their description. So you know, keep it, I like to make it very personal because I think that's what he's trying to tell people. Not just, you know, these are ages. So unto the church of Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus, if you remember, that was the church, that, that was the city that John was the bishop over. He had, he had the overseeing of the church of Ephesus. Ephesus was in Asia Minor, right by the coast. It had one of the great seven wonders of the ancient world, 
and that was the temple of Artemis, even though most people will say Diana. It's actually Artemis, which is slightly different than Diana because the Greeks, the uh, Diane was fairly, even though the fertility god was fairly chaste in the way that their worship was, and Artemis was a very licentious worship and, and, and display. <laughs> uh, so you wanna, we want to keep that in mind. Ephesus was not a very good city in many ways. It was a city of refuge, though. Uh, people could run to Ephesus, and it was a sanctuary city. They didn't, they didn't hand people over to the authorities. Uh, they, they, if you made it to Ephesus, you were pretty much safe as long as you could afford to live <laughs> and do something in Ephesus. It was a place of sanctuary. Uh, it uh, was a pleasure city. Uh, we would liken it to what Las Vegas has always been considered, Sin City. Uh, and that was, would be Ephesus of its day. Uh, and Artemis was a fertility, a god of nature and fertility. The picture of her was a multi-breasted woman with overly exaggerated breasts and, and worship in the temple included orgies and, and gifts and and the, the temple there was the bank of the area. They, they protected, it was a very safe, safe place and they, they were the bank, basically. Uh, very wealthy. Uh, the city was there until, uh, the, the temple was there until about 401 AD. Just give you some history about Ephesus. It's quite an interesting town. And uh, so we wanna look at this and it says, these are the things that says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks in the midst of the golden candlesticks. This is the picture of Jesus in relationship to Ephesus. Now, who remembers what the stars represent? We talked about that last week. Does anybody? Seven pastors. Pastors. The, the pastors, the rulers of the, of, of the church. And the seven candlesticks churches. are the churches. Yes. And that's from Revelation 120. That's where we get this definition. So the picture we're getting of for Ephesus is that Jesus is holding the pastors and it's in his right hand. And what does the right hand represent? Holiness. Honor. Honor, approval. Uh, okay. Very good. And he's walking in the midst. And I love the word here for Greek and for walk. It is he is living amongst them. Okay, not just walking, but he's living amongst the seven candlesticks or living amongst his churches that are following him. And it's a very beautiful picture of the relationship of the church with Jesus when Jesus is there. And I don't know if you've ever been to a church where it's quite obvious that Jesus isn't there. I've been to some of those. Uh, you know, you would just think if Jesus walked into that church, they'd turn him away because they're just going to do things their way and there is no presence of the Spirit at all. And that's a sad place to be. But Jesus says in his churches, he's in the midst of them. And this is a very beautiful picture of who Jesus is. And it says, I know your works. This word, this know means to know by perception, to see, to touch, to handle. Okay, this isn't just I know a fact. Okay. Uh, and that could be somebody told me about something is the other type of no. Personal knowledge? It's personal knowledge. I know that this is a glass eyeglass yeah. case. Why? I've touched it. I've looked at it. I've seen it. Uh, you could tell me there's an eyeglass case on this table, and if I'm in the other room and not seeing it, I'm going to, yes, I know there's an eyeglass case, and I don't know what it looks like. I don't know 
you know, I don't know if you're even telling me the truth, but according to what you told me, I know that there's an eyeglass case on this table. But when I'm in here, this, this word is to know. I see it. I've touched it. I've handled it. And this is what Jesus says, I know your works. I'm seeing them. I'm watching them. I'm not, I'm not just being told of them from somebody giving me a testimony. I am right there seeing it. And I just want to bring that out because this is a very powerful form of know. It says, I know your works and your labor and your patience. And this works is literally the type of work that means business, your enterprise, what you are doing. And it means literally, and his labor literally means to work to fatigue. Okay, these people were, he's saying, I know what you're doing and I know how much you're laboring to get it done. All right, and he goes, I know you're working to the point of fatigue even, and that you're patient. And so there's a great uh, commendation here for them. He knows they're working hard, that they're, they're not giving up, they're, they're patient. And he says, I know you cannot bear them which are evil. And for many churches in our day and age, they're willing to accept sin and not say that it's sin. Uh, there's a lot of people that are so worried that if they, you know, there's a lot of pastors out there, they're worried if they say something's a sin, that they might lose a bunch of people so they don't call things sin. And he's saying, uh, this is a church that called sin, sin. It didn't, it didn't mince words. It's, you know, that hates the sin. It doesn't, doesn't put up with the sin. It's going to love the people. And we've talked a lot about how Christians will make that statement. You love, the, you hate the sin and you love the person. And the world, we've said it many times, the world does not understand that statement because in the world you are what you do. They don't make the separation between who you are and what you do. This can't be separated. So when we say that we love the, love, I hate the sin and love the sinner, they're looking at us like we're absolutely nuts. You can't do that. Okay? We look at somebody who says they're homosexual and say, okay, I know that you are a sinner you can be a sinner saved by grace who is committing the sin of homosexuality and the world says well they're just a homosexual and they tie them together so tightly that you can't separate the truth the two when we, somebody's a drunk we we say okay it's a sinner that's saved by grace who who's drinking too much and the world says well they're they're sick and you can't separate the two all right and how you approach the the fixing of problems is a big difference when you when you don't separate the two if you're trying to separate who they are, you know, and you can't separate the fact that they're a sinner saved by grace and committing a sin, or even a sinner not saved by grace committing a sin, they're just a sinner committing a sin, or, you know, if you can't break those two apart, it makes it very hard to deal with because they feel defeated because they are what they do in the world. And it says here that, you know, you hate the sin, you hate evil. And you have tried those which claim to be apostles and are not and found them to be liars. In the early church, there were many people who claimed to be apostles. The church was just starting. They were going, I've got authority. This, I've got the teaching. And, just, it, and we even see it today where people will take on a title that they don't deserve. Uh, they'll, you'll get somebody who says he's a pastor and all they're trying to do is make money. You know, I don't know why they're trying to make money as a pastor, but lots of people do. Uh, you know, but they're not loving the people. They're not caring about the people. They're just, they're charlatans. They're not, they're not true. They're preaching it, but not doing it. 
not preaching, maybe not even preaching the word. Yeah. They're just they're preaching yeah. what people want to hear to try to build a big church. And this is where a lot of places, you know, not all big churches, but many of the big churches are very seeker friendly. They'll not they'll not tell you that the sin is a sin, and they're trying to make it a big open open house. Everybody's welcome. It doesn't matter what you do. Come on in, and you can just stay the way you are. Just give to our church and make us rich. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but there are many church, you know, there are some big churches that are still preaching the gospel. So I'm not going to condemn all big churches, but a lot of them are not preaching the gospel, not teaching that sin is sin, not not speaking uh, God's word. And the church at Ephesus was one of those that it spoke God's word. It says sin is out there. We're not going to put up with sin. We're not going to accept sin. And they were standing strong. And this is, the church has swung back and forth over the years between this whole mentality of being extremely harsh on sin and maybe at some points too harsh on sin, <laughs> driving people out of the church for any, anything that they do. Then you got the far extreme that we're kind of in right now where anything goes. And we want to fall kind of in between because, and I've said it many times, I want sinners to come to church. I want them to hear the gospel. Number one, we're all sinners. You know, I don't want somebody saying, well, because they're, because you have a sin problem in your life, you know, you can't come to church and hear the gospel. No, I want them to be here. I want them to hear the gospel. Now, if they're trying to promote their sin and try to say, you've got to accept my sin or trying to, you know, get people to commit the sin with them, then we've got a problem when we say, no, you're not, <laughs> you're not, you're not staying here because then you're trying to harm the church. But for the most part, I want people here. I want, I want people that are committing sins. I want people here where they're going to hear the gospel of God and the word of God and be able to change. And so this is where he's talking about and, he, and then he goes, verse three, and you have borne and have patient for my name's sake, have labored and have not fainted. So he says, you've borne, you've borne problems. You know, you, you, you bear them, you, you, you've carried them. And again, he goes, he says for a second time, they have patience. Yeah. You know, patience, they're, they're steadfast, they're enduring. Uh, sometimes, you know, patience is something that's very hard for most of us. You know, a lot of times we're going, God, uh, I want such and such to happen, and I want it yesterday. <laughs> you know, I don't even want it now, God. I wanted it yesterday, and you're, and you're late already. <laughs> you know, and God's saying, well, you'll get it when I give it to you, <laughs> if I think you need it. You know, because uh, God has three answers to anything we pray, yes, no, and, and wait. <laughs> and so, you know, we really don't like, we love yes, <laughs> We usually don't care for no, and we really don't like wait. <laughs> you know, where God says, just wait for me to get around to doing whatever it is that I want. But then that's when you're learning patience. And that's when we learn patience and, and find out we may or may not want it after yeah. all. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, there's a country song, Thank God for Unanswered Prayers. And I kind of love that song because it is, you know, okay. you know, we don't like the word no at the time, but when we look back on it, sometimes we'll be very happy that God told us no. Uh, if we think about when we were teenagers or when we were raising teenagers, the times we told them no and, and it was, you know, or we were told no and we hated it. You're just trying to ruin my fun. You're, you just don't want me to do anything. And, and we look back and say, boy, I'm glad they said no to that, <laughs> to that event or, or, you know, because we, and then as we as adults, we see where something may lead our kids and we say, no, you can't do that. And they just say the same thing we, we say and the same thing we say to God. You just don't want me to have fun. You're trying to just control me. And God's saying, no, I'm trying to protect you. 
And then he goes, but you have labored, again, worked unto the point of exhaustion for his name's sake. Now, we've talked many times about name. And does anybody remember what we've said about name in the past on any of our studies? Yes, stand up for your name. That's your, uh, people respect your name or disrespect your name, depending how you use your name or, or people think your reputation. Reputation. The name is everything that is your reputation, your, your, your uh, authority. If somebody is doing something in the name of the president, then you're number one, you're assuming that he knows the president <laughs> and has some command from them, you know, commands from them. And you're assuming that he's doing what he has been told to do and that he carries the authority. Uh, it would happen in the Old Testament where they do something in the name of the king. Or in that case, they would usually give them their signet ring, which had bore the mark and said, you know, they stamped it on, you know, stamped it on the clay or the or the the ink and stamped it on paper and it showed the king's mark and said this is in the name of the king so whatever they did with that signet ring showed that it was in that authority we are to walk in the name of Jesus and this is why it's really a sad thing when Christians don't walk the way God tells them to walk because it is putting shame on his name and the crazy thing is that non-Christians have a higher expectation of how Christians are supposed to walk than most Christians do. You know, and it, now, unfortunately, most non-Christians have way too high <laughs> a view. I mean, they, you're, you're never going to lie. You're never going to get angry. You're never going to say a crossword. You're ne- you know, they're, 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 their thoughts are just a little bit too high, but they do expect us to be like Christ. But then I tell them that's why I go to church. <laughs> but as Christians, a lot of times we excuse a lot of things just because, and we use grace more as a license to sin a lot of times. Well, God's just going to forgive me, so and I'm weak, so I can just do this, you know. And we're not working or striving to be perfect, or we're not letting God crucify us to be made better, which is what I like. You know, we're just saying I'm going to go do what I want. God's going to forgive me. And the sad thing is, we know that He will. You know, we're going to lose rewards because of it. We will have bad consequences because of it. But we're not going to sit there and say, you're going to lose your salvation. You're not, that's not going to happen. If you are saved, you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you are going to heaven, uh, period. It's not something he's going to take away because he's declared you perfect. You will be perfect at the end of your life, even if you have failings, and we all do. And... But we don't want to be excusing them. We really need to be going to God and saying, God, I need help in this area of my life. I have a weakness. It's, it's troubling to me. And we all have weaknesses that trouble us. And some people might look at our weakness and say, well, why do you have such a problem with that area? Because it's so easy. And they're probably looking, they'd be looking at you and say, well, why do you have a problem in this other area that's so easy? You know? And this is why we can't be judging one another. Because what I think is a real easy thing to do, others will go, boy, that's the hard thing, hard area in my life, and I'm, fe- I'm falling flat on my face, and somebody's you know, looking at it and saying, wow, how can you fall flat on your face in that area? It was so simple not to, not to do. And because we're all working out our salvation before God in fear and trembling, hopefully. that you know, I'm not going to make an excuse just because I have a failing area. God, you're just going to have to accept this. No, God, I want you to come in and, and, 
and deliver me of this area. Please crucify this area of my life. And he will over the long run. And then, unfortunately, he'll show us some other area in our life that we have to work on. And he'll keep doing that for as long as we live. We'll never get to perfection in, in, this, in this life. And if you do, then you'll probably be translated right into heaven like uh, uh, Enoch and uh, Elijah. You know, they got so close to God, he said, okay, just come on home. You know, so if you get that close, God will just take you home. Uh, no. <laughs> I, don't, I don't expect that to happen to me, and I don't, I don't, don't know too many people that I expect it to happen to. Um, but he I says, would have to be born again. From, I mean, totally different. <laughs> but he says, you're laboring. You're not fainting. They're working hard. Now, unfortunately, sometimes working hard at something, serving God, can be just as bad as anything else because we start doing it in our own strength. God, I'm just going to keep doing this. And I used to be that way. God, I'm going to do these 800 jobs because they need to be done, and I'm dying, and I have no time to do anything else, but I'm going to... By, by, by goodness, I'm going to get it done. <laughs> and you're dying, and all of a sudden you're, you collapse. <laughs> and that's not what God wants us to do. And I've said it over and over and over again. Find what it is that God's called you to do and, and do it. If it's just one thing in the church, do that one thing he's called you to do. If it's four or five things and you feel not pressured by it and you know you're called to do it, do the four or five things, but don't do them just because you think they need to be done. I've had pastors in churches that will complain they don't have enough nursery workers. And I go, I can solve your nursery problem real quick. And he goes, how? Close the nursery. You know, my attitude is if you don't have people willing to do a ministry, then it's not important enough to do no matter how important you think it is. Now, if you close the nursery, some people are gonna volunteer real quick so that the babies aren't in the, in the service screaming the whole service. But, but the whole point is, though, if you can't find people willing to do the jobs, then obviously the people don't think that mission, that, that particular ministry is important enough to the church to be doing. And that could be something as simple as Sunday school. You know, I've had people really uh, go crazy wondering how they're going to get their Sunday school teachers. And I go, simple, either combine classes and make big classes or get rid of the Sunday school. We can get rid of Sunday school. And, well, I don't know. I don't see any place in my Bible that says you have to have Sunday school. You know, uh, I see places where it says have Bible studies, but it doesn't, you know, and I really didn't believe me when I say that. I love Sunday school. I think Sunday school is very important because it's a way to get, you know, interaction in a small group. I think it's very important to do. But by the same token, if you can't find somebody to do it, then obviously the church doesn't think it's important and you just don't do it. And this is what's important because we don't want people doing jobs that they're not called for. And there's many different reasons for that. And believe me, I used to do that when I was, a, you know, in my 20s, I did it. If something needed to be done, I, I did it. I just filled it. There's two problems with that. Number one, the person who's filling it that's not called is probably going to get burnt out. And they're going to get angry about doing it because they're the one doing it. Nobody else is stepping up to do it. The second problem is the person who is called to do it looks around and says, well, I thought I was supposed to be doing this job, but somebody's already doing it. So, I, you know, and then they end up not doing anything. You know, so you have a two-way street. You have one person who's frustrated because they're doing something they're not supposed, they're not called to do, and you got the person who was called to do it saying, I don't know what's going on here, so I must not, I must not be hearing from God, 
and they don't do anything because what they were supposed to be done was already filled by somebody who's not supposed to be there. Uh, so my, my, my goal, my, my advice to people is, and it's a very simple statement, a need is not necessarily your call. You know, talk to God, ask him what you think you're supposed to do. I've been in churches where I've been in, in kind of an assistant position without any title or anything, and people go, I think the church needs to do such and such. I'm going, that's a great idea. When would you like to start it? I'll help you get it started. Because obviously, if they think it's important, they're probably the one that should be starting it. Very few people take me up on my offer to get them started on it. But it really is. If, if they're the one that thinks it's important, they've got the passion, they've got the call, and they'll be gifted by God to get it done. And I was more than willing to help them get a budget and, and get them started, and I'd even help them start it uh, with my administrative skills and everything because I came from a church that was like that. I think we should be doing such and such, and the pastor will go, okay, let's get it started. You're in charge. Cool. And I have no problem with that if somebody wants to be the one that runs it because, you know, I have plenty of jobs. I don't need any more jobs. You know, I teach a lot and I administrate a lot of different things. Even in a small church like this, I don't need any more missions to do. But if somebody has something they want to do, I'll be more than happy to get them started and help them get started and find money you know and pray about the finances on it but you know and we've had people that say well we should do such and such great let's get it done uh, and I have no problem with that I love to see things being done by other people because I want to see other people stand up and be empowered by God to do things and this is what he's saying your labor you're not fainting you you've done it and he says but <laughs> nevertheless but and when you see those words, you want to try to really pay attention. I have something against you because you have left your first love. They've gone cold toward Jesus. Work had replaced Jesus. And this happens so often in our lives and in the church's lives. It said that in the early church, if the Holy Spirit and God had pulled out of the church, the church would fall apart. You know, about 10% would, you know, would keep going. Most churches, if God came out of the church, probably 90% of what they do would go, keep going on, you know, because the Holy Spirit wasn't in it in the first place. You know, we've got our Sunday school books, we've got our, we've got our schedule, we've got our plans, and, you know, and we wouldn't even miss him because we would just say, okay, we're just doing what we do. You know, we would just keep moving on. And we don't ever want to get to that place where everything is just so regimented that we wouldn't miss God if he stepped out. And this church was in there. I know your works. I know your, your labors. You're, you're unfainting in your labors. You're doing a great job. You're, you're working real hard. But. Mine didn't say, mine says nevertheless. Nevertheless. Yeah, never. It means but. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you've left that first love, that passion with God. And it, and it kind of bothers me as, as well. I've been with God for 40, you know, 44 years now. And. I am not as passionate as I was in those early days with him at times. Yeah, but I told you when I got saved, I, I went out and told everybody and filled the church Sunday school bus up and, and you know, fought hard in high school, you know, with my science teachers teaching evolution and all these people that were teaching that there was no absolute truths and, you know, fighting hard for them. And I still do to a degree, but I don't have that same passion. And part of that is just the way cycles go. We talk about that even in a marriage. 
you go through these cycles of passionately in love with each other like you were at the beginning to place it to the place where you're looking across the across the building and say who is this person living in my house and why why are we together you know and you keep your cycle going and you you come back to the feelings of love and he, Jesus is saying you've left me you kind of left me behind you're doing you're doing things and we've always got to be careful that we're not just doing things and this is why I say you know, I have no problem if, if they, we can't get workers to do something, then obviously we weren't supposed to do it. I've had this idea that I'd love to do a block party here at the church, some, you know, in the summer. But I can't usually get people to come up and volunteer because they're busy, and there's no way I'm going to try to run a block party by myself. It just won't work. So I've kind of put it on the back burner until somebody else gets called to do that, and, and then I will help them get it accomplished. There's other visions we have here that I'd love to see us do, but we need to grow and, and stuff. I'd love to see us provide transportation to Kingman for, the, for people in, the, in this town. You know, uh, that takes us growing to a certain point so that we can afford to pay drivers and van, you know, a van and maintenance the van and insurance. Do I believe God's going to do it at some point? Yes, I do. Well, how long will that be? I have no idea. <laughs> you know, but there's always, there needs to be vision. There needs to be things that we're trying to work toward. Am I going to start, try to force these things in, into the pet? No, because in the long run, if I force them, we'll get, get hurt more than, more than we'll help people. And so we want to keep God in the center of everything that goes on and, and not be able to say, this is what we want to do. We want to be careful. Uh, and I've said it over and over. Anytime you're using the word I and we and look what I have done, and you, know, you start running into some big problems. It has to be what has God done. And this is where we want to be careful. And sometimes when I sit in pastor's meetings, you know, the pastors will go, well, look what my church is doing. I'm going, okay, well, that's good. You know, but are you being prideful or are you, is God the one that's actually working? And it's something you want to be careful because you want to celebrate what God is doing, but you want to be careful that you're not saying, this is what I have done. I, I, love, our work, I love our webpage. It's getting more and more hits every month. And it's amazing to, to watch the numbers on it and just, God, what are you doing out there? You know, God, what are you doing out there? We had 480 people listening to messages this last month. And I don't even know how they're finding the page because we're really not that advertised out there on the pages. I still have mine on pause. So I have it on pause. I hope it's still on pause. It will be. It will be. But, you know, all these people listening out there and... It's a good page. Well, we, we've got... Like it. Well, it's nothing I did. I love to use the templates and fill them in, so... <laughs> but just the idea of having that out there and just thinking about how many people are listening to the messages that we hear here each, each, each time I, I speak. I think it's cool that this little church has had that all over the world. Well, that's what I think of. We're, we're actually reaching more people online than we are... In church. In, in, in town. Yeah. Yeah, and that means when we get to heaven, we're going to be, give, be given a blessing saying, these are the people that your little church reached that you never knew about. And each one of us who have given to the church and supported this church have a part in that because without you guys, we wouldn't have the webpage yeah. and I wouldn't have the place to teach. And, Plus, you know. this is just a little church. I think it's so cool. But this but. whole thing, we, we, we work on that first love. And then verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the first works or else 
I will come unto you quickly and remove your candlestick out of his place, except you repent. And first he's saying, remember, remember. All through the scriptures, God talks about putting on landmarks, putting on remembering, remembrance of what goes on. The, the feast of the Passover was to remind them of the deliverance of, of Egypt. And for us, as we look back, the deliverance from sin, because Jesus was the Passover lamb. They, when they crossed the Red Sea, they were, they were told to pull stones out and they made a pillar. When they crossed, they crossed the, the Jordan River and the water spread, they were told to pull the stones out and they made this big stack of stones. And the, and the reason was that when your children see these stones and asks you, ask you, what do these mean, you would rehearse the stories back to them. We all need to keep track of what God has done in our life the high points in our life because when we are down we need things to be able to look back on and say this is what God did this is what God did this is what God did it's one thing to look at the scriptures and see what God has done for others you know and in the scriptures oh look what he did 2000 4000 years ago man God was good wasn't he you know and that is usually how we look at it you know uh, i've heard people well well, God doesn't work that way anymore. Well, my God still works the same way he did in the, old, in the Old and New Testament. He still does miracles. He still gives prophecies. He still heals people. You know, well, yeah, like I even he, about my thumb. Yeah. yeah. He still does everything he does, did in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it really bothers when people say, look what God used to do. And we, what is he doing now? Yeah, and we need to look at, and this is why... We need to share with each other what God is doing for us. Because it does two things. Number one, it gives us a landmark. It says, look what God's doing in my life. Okay? And I need to keep marking those. God did this. God did this. God did this in my life. And it's also good that when we're sharing with others that, they, that you get to find out God is still working. You know, may, maybe I haven't seen him in my life, but he's still working in somebody else's life. He's still doing those miraculous things. I like to read stories about missionaries and godly men and pastors because they're more modern than the than the this Bible. And I believe the Bible fully that the God did, but it just it helps to read the Cory Ten Boom, the Cross and the Switchblade, God Smuggler, you know, uh, the you know, all these different books about missionaries and just see what God is still doing today. And then it opens my eyes. What is God doing in my life? And that's why I really encourage people, share when God tells you something, share with one another. When God gives you a miracle, share it with one another. See, I wish I would have taped a lot of stuff that Lucky told me about because his parents were missionaries and all the things they did in the Congo and Africa. Mm -hmm. But I took it for granted, but it was just so amazing. Yeah. To see, but you know, if we really start thinking about our life, God has probably done some very amazing things in our life if we just open our mind to see the spiritual side of things. Those times when the, the bills got paid at the last moment, you know, and sometimes we, we, we attributed it to luck or whatever it might be, but it was God. You know, I was looking at last month's bills and saying, God, uh, we're about uh, $150 short. Where's the money coming from? And I got little more money than that to, to pay the bills but for the, by the end of the month and now we got another month to look at uh, for you know and I'm really getting to the point now where I say God here's your bills you take care of them 
you know, they're yours, God. You've got me doing this, and I haven't been able to find anything else, uh, you know, to supplement. So they're your bills, God. And he'll give me some computer job where somebody will pay me 60, 70 bucks and get, you know, something will come in the mail. You know, God has been providing miraculously. So I'm getting to the place where I try, try not to worry about them. You know, and when I'm looking at that red line at the bottom of the month on my, on my computer, I, I, you know, it's hard sometimes, so I don't look at that very often, <laughs> unless there's new stuff to have to put into, the, into, the, into it, which makes, it even, makes that red line even worse. <laughs> um, but I'm learning to just have rest. God, you, he's been faithful. He's going to be faithful. He'll make it happen. How he makes it happen, I don't know. He just does. You know, and then I look at this church's finances. You know, this year we have had four times we've had broke the record gifts since I've been here. You know, which means that we're getting into the 2,000 range four times this year. It's been amazing, and we don't preach a lot on tithing and all of that, and don't even pass the plate around. You just put it in the back box, you know. But God is meeting needs. And you know, I remember when I first started here, we were lucky to get $500 a month, you know, which just barely, well, 500 didn't even cover the bills. <laughs> and you know, now we're looking at you know, our average is running around 1,500. You know, and God is just blessing. And we're able to do many things. We're on the internet, we're buying the recording stuff, we're, you know, we're, we're, spending, we're spending the money he gives, we're using it to build the kingdom and watching what God does. And this is what he's saying. Remember where you've fallen from and repent. Now, repent is a word that is not used a lot in churches anymore. It used to be, used to be used all the time. But repent. Change your mind about what you're doing. Most people will say, well, I'm sorry. And they, and they say, I've repented. No, if all you say is you're sorry. My kids used to say, I'm sorry to each other all the time when we made them. They weren't sorry. They weren't repenting. And I remember when I did it with my dad. So tell your brother you're sorry for what you did. Okay, I'm sorry. You know, well, did you mean it? Of course not. <laughs> and I'm still going to hit him when he gets, takes my toy. You know, it's, you know uh, repentance is so deep. And it means to really change our mind. And I am doing such and such. And I am sorry that I've done it. And I'm going to quit doing it to the best of my ability. I'm going to change my mind. And the way it involves confession. And if we remember, confession means, the Greek word for confession is homologeo, which means to say the same thing as. When I confess, I'm saying the same thing about my sin as God says about it, that it is sin. Okay? I'm agreeing with God. And that's part of repentance. And I that it is sin. Not just, oh, well, I got caught. I got I to gotta tell you that I did it. You know, true confession is to admit that I've done it before I'm caught. Otherwise, I'm just trying to get out of trouble. <laughs> okay, God, you caught me. I'm in, you know, they caught me. I'm going to confess. And hopefully they won't be as bad to me because I'm confessing. And, but this, he says, repent. Repent from what you've been doing and return to your first works. Your first ones when you were following him. And he says, else I will come quickly 
and remove the candlestick out of your place except you repent. And that literally could mean removing the church from a place. If the, if the people of the church are not repenting, repentant, he can remove the church. And he may remove the church and still have a building there with people in it. And he just said, well, I'm gone. You know, and, he, and he wrote uh, Ichabod across the top of the door spiritually, which means the spirit has departed. You know, and that is, and you can feel sometimes if you go into some churches that they have Ichabod written across their door. There is no spirit in that door, in that, in that building. It's just people. Just people doing their thing. And this is going to be the sad thing when the rapture occurs. There are going to be some churches in this, in this world that aren't even going to know the rapture occurred because so few people of their church have disappeared. Because they don't, there are a lot of people that don't know God. There'll be some churches that will be practically empty. People will come to church and go, where is everybody? And other ones will have nobody gone, and those won't be the ones pointed when, when people are saying this was the rapture. I'll go, no, look at, look at the, the first church of the world over here that uh, is full. <laughs> None of them disappeared. They were a Christian church, supposedly. <laughs> and, they're, and they're still full. Their pastor's still there. Their deacons are still there. Their teachers are still there. And we need to come back to our first works, the first love. And otherwise, God is going to remove the candlestick. He's going to remove the church. And that would be a sad thing to have happen. And I never want to see any church that I'm involved with have that happen. But if it was to happen in a church that you're in, if you're following God, he'll have taken you out of the church before that happens. And people have asked me, you know, well, what if this pastor is a really bad pastor and they're not, a, they're not a good shepherd? I go, well, then go to another church. <laughs> well, what about all the other people there? If they're spiritual, they'll leave and they'll find another church and he'll be left there with all the dead to a bunch of dead people and have a dead church. And that's really how I've always felt about it. You know, God will, God will take care of any, any false pastors. He'll take care of them and he'll protect his people that are spiritual. He'll remove them from those kind of pastors. And Remember the false prophets. And false prophets. And in Jeremiah, all through, you know, many places in Jeremiah, God says, I will deal with the false shepherds, the false pastors. And... Um, Verse 6, but this you have, for you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now we're going to try to figure out who the Nicolaitans are, and we'll tell you, number one, nobody knows. <laughs> uh, later on in, in Revelation, we are told that the Nicolaitans follow the doctrine of Balaam. Okay, and I'm not sure if anybody in here remembers who Balaam is, but in, in the book of Numbers, Balaam was a quote-unquote, prophet of God, and when he cursed somebody, they were cursed, and when he blessed them, they were blessed. And this king called Balaam, and he says, I want you to curse the Israelites that are coming near my land, because when you curse them, they, they, they are cursed. And Balaam went to God and said, shall I go? And God said, no. And so he said, no, I can't go. God won't curse them. And the king sent another group with more money to Balaam, and Balaam said, well, let me go to God and ask. And God said, no. And he called him and saw from another high, high hill, and God said, no. And then on the third time, you know, Balaam said, well, you know, basically was telling he had a heart that I want to go, and God told him to go. And that's when the donkey talked to him and said, you know, and oh, kept trying to run off, the, run off the path, crushed his leg, and he started beating the donkey, and he had his conversation with the donkey, which always has blown my mind how somebody <laughs> could just have a conversation with a donkey and not even think it's strange. Uh, you know, the donkey asked, why are you beating me? And he answers him, and... <laughs> 
sees the death angel waiting for him, and God reiterates, you're going to say only what I tell you to say. I think that would, that's just scary enough with the talking donkey. And Mr. Ed talked on television. Yeah. And then, as he went there, he didn't curse Israel. And to get his money, he told the king how to bring Israel down. And what he told the king was, send your, your beautiful women in there, have them intermarry with your people, and send your good-looking guys in there and intermarry with their daughters and bring idolatry into the camp. Okay, so if that's true, and this is what most of the early church fathers believed, basically the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is to just go out and sin without, without consequences. And the idea was that because you're saved, because you're saved, because you're washed in the blood, because Jesus died for your sins, you can go on and do whatever it is you want to do. And you're still going to go to heaven. And for those of us who teach you can't lose your salvation, there are many people that teach that that is exactly what we're telling people. And my, my answer is no, if somebody is truly saved, they're not going to go out and sin without conviction and, without, and just because they want to sin. If they're truly following God and they have a relationship with God and they go out and sin, God is going to convict them and they can't go out and just live in sin. And, but this is what many, many people who teach, you know, that you, there can be, that, uh, you can't lose your salvation. That is what we're accused of. We're accused of being Nicolaitans. Uh, there's a particular church group out there, uh, whether they're Christian or not, I want to get into, but they accuse all of the other churches of being Nicolaitans because that you're and then you then God will deal with you and you and they believe you have to follow all the rules and laws that God gave you or you're not saved you know and that means dietary and worship on Saturday and and don't eat the stuff you're not supposed to eat and don't do this and don't do that you know because obviously Jesus never fulfilled the law when he died for our sins because uh, you know he just couldn't do it for some whatever reason and uh, and they go we're Nicolaitans because we don't emphasize that you must follow the laws uh, and the problem is they don't follow the laws either they try but they still break all the laws and and there is no second sacrifice if you're not going to believe that Jesus was enough you're out of luck when you when you fall uh, because there is no second sacrifice according to Hebrews 6 and and that where, where Paul says if it is true that you can do this you know and you fall there is no no second uh, second sacrifice no coming back and that if in Greek is if and it cannot happen <laughs> okay but he says if and it can't happen it, you know and it, and it did this would be the result of it and so we want to be careful the Nicolaitans in that it means to conquer or destroy the people and this is what Balaam did he taught he taught the king how to destroy Israel and they went into deep sin because they intermarried with all these idolatry practicing idolaters and got into idolatry and the Nicolaitans would be that same it is mostly believed by the early church fathers that that's what they did they they brought in what's called antinomianism which means to you get your good Jesus saves you and then you can do whatever you want and it's a false doctrine so we want to be very careful with it and he says you hate those that are teaching this and we need to hate those that are teaching that kind of stuff because it is false. You know, this is the Judaizers that came in behind Paul all the time and said, Paul's message was great, but you, know, you need to do, you need to be worshiping on the Sabbath. You need to not eat meat offered to idols. You need to 
do all this stuff and you know and you know Jesus was great but <laughs> okay and we want to be very careful if you're around people that are saying everything about Jesus was good but you need to do and as soon as you hear that but you're you're in trouble and this happens in, even in good churches Jesus was great but follow these rules to really a really good Christian you know, you're not going to lose your salvation but if you really want to be a good Christian here's your rules to follow and if you're that if you're getting that out of somebody you're, you're looking at the problems because each one of us are going to be given things that we can't do by God. And the key to this is, I'm not going to go out there and write a list of everything God's told me I can't do and say, here, this is what you got to do to be a good Christian. Because it won't mean anything to you guys. It's what God told me <laughs> I have to do. And each one of us could sit down and write the rules that God has said, these are the things I can't do. If you've been following God in, in any way, shape, or form, he's going to give you things you can't do. That if you try to do, you're going to be under conviction and say, wow, I just can't do this. You know, but it's so sad when I know some people that are away and you cannot change them. I, I don't try to change them, but I just tell them, but then I drop it because then they're always right. God's the only one that can change yeah, them anyway. I know. It's, it's, it's as I've said, you know, in my early days of my marriage, I kept asking God to change my wife and he changed me. So I've just quit. I, I've skipped yeah. a step and said, God changed me. Yeah. Because I learned very quickly, I can't change anybody. I couldn't change any of my kids. Now, I could discipline and try to bend them in the right direction, but I couldn't change them. If they wanted to do something, they were going to do it just as I did when I was growing up. If I wanted to do something, it didn't matter what trouble I was going to be in for doing it, I went out and did it. And I'm still that way to some degree. I've grown and, and bend a lot easier. But, you know, I'm still to the place where if somebody says, you've got to do this, What's my first response is, oh, yeah, watch me. You know, I'm softened up enough now that I go back to God and say, God, is this, <laughs> is this something I should or shouldn't do? Or what do you want me to do? But when I was younger, in my teen years, in my 20s, I just said, oh, yeah, yeah you can't, I can't do this. So I'm, and I went off and did it just because I was told I couldn't. But it's just so sad. Cause, I mean, I don't try to change them. I just want them to know that how they believe it is not because they think that I'm wrong on how I believe, and so I just kind of drop it then because you can't argue with them. All we can do is give them the gospel. Yeah. And what they do with the gospel is up to them. What they do with what, what they're following is up to them. If they're stuck in some weird belief, then that's, I mean, there's Christians that are stuck in weird beliefs. There's denominations out there that teach us that once you're saved, you're truly sanctified and you're supposed to be perfect. Well, I've never met a perfect Christian anywhere, so I can't understand where that church gets that doctrine and how they stand on that doctrine. Okay, uh, I, you know, and we see all of this stuff that goes on out there, and the sad thing is some people truly, 100%, honestly believe it. Uh, there are people that believe you can lose your salvation, and they'll, they'll cherry pick some verses out there and take them out of context and say, yeah. see, right here it is. You, That's you know, yeah. Uh, and you go, and unfortunately it's because they're reading it in English and not in Greek that they, that they think that it means you can lose your salvation. Uh, because they'll point to a verse that says, if you, do, if you are a thief or a, or a murderer, you can't enter heaven. Well, in the Greek, those words are almost all the time, if you are continually with practicing this sin, and you're not being convicted, <laughs> then you're not saved anyway. Okay, And that would be my attitude, is that number one, you're not saved. Now, can I judge that person? Nope, that's between them and God. But if I see somebody who is always doing, committing a sin and never seeming to be convicted of it, 
I'm going to start praying for their salvation and giving them the gospel rather than saying, okay, you know, now if I see them sinning and they have conviction and they seem to be sorry, then we're going to pray for strength, strength to be able to grow. All right, uh, let's see the last verse for this section. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I give to eat the tree of life that is in the midst of paradise. And I love this first one. He that has an ear, let him hear. Uh, now, we all know we all have ears, but it's really saying, are you truly perceiving? <laughs> are you truly perceiving? And I've heard, and I've said this many times, I've heard so many people when they give their testimony, and I heard the gospel for the first time and I responded you know, and it's really funny when it's somebody that you know has been told the gospel over and over. over and over again but you know in one sense it is true that it was the first time that it just didn't hit the eardrums and bounce around and, and sink in their head but they actually heard the message and this is what it's saying those who have an ear to hear the spirit is listening the spirit is overcoming and it says and to him that overcomes will I give. All right, who are those that overcome? How, how do you overcome? Anybody have an idea? We're going to give you the answer. First John 5. Because John is the writer of Revelation, so First John is his commentary on, on, that, on, that, on what he means when he says that. First John 5, starting at verse 4. For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and is and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world? But he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So Christians are overcomers. <laughs> Alright? So we read this one and says, He that overcomes, he's talking about Christians. <laughs> because it's not us that overcomes. We are overcomers because Christ is the overcomer. We are overcomers because he has crucified who we are and he lives through us. So when every one of these churches are going to have this statement, he that overcomes, and he's specifically speaking to all of us, all of us that are Christians. And then it says that I will give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of paradise. And we're going to take a very quick journey through the scriptures. Uh, you might just want to write them down because you... We're going to start in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. I'm going to read them because I've got a mark so I can get there fast. We're running out of time. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life also was in the midst of the garden and also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the first mention of the tree of life in that, that God created it in the Garden of Eden. 3.22 And the Lord said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil, and now, lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, God put him out of the garden. And so we, we want to look at that. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 says... Chapter 3, verse 18. <laughs> she, speaking of wisdom, she is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her, and happy is everyone that retaineth her. Wisdom. 
Wisdom is also a picture of Jesus, in case you want to put the two together. So anybody who grabs hold of Jesus is grabbing hold of the tree of life in this, in this, through this verse. Proverbs 11, verse 30. The fruit of righteousness is a tree of life, and he that wins souls is wise. Righteousness, and the only way we can have righteousness is through Jesus Christ. <laughs> so we got a picture of this. Jesus is the tree of life. In, in, in a very real way. Then we're going to look at Revelation 22. And we're going to start at verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of, of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of the God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the streets of it, and on either side of the river, was there was, a, was the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of nations. So it's picturing in the new heaven and earth, the tree of life will be there. And just as a curiosity for you to think about, it says that the tree of life with the new heaven and earth yields fruit every month in its season. So I'll give you that to contemplate and think about. And we're not going to read it right now, but in Ezekiel 47, verses 7 through 12, you get the same picture we just read in Revelation 22. The, the river and the trees and the, and the life. So the, the tree of life. Jesus Christ himself, when we grab hold of him, is the tree of life. And that is eternal life. And if we read in, in John 17, one last scripture to go through. And it says in verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Is that first John or John? John. Just John. John 17, verse 3. So eternal life is to know the giver of life. And that's Jesus, specifically, but also to know God. So it's just a very powerful thing. And it says when we're overcomers, we, will eat of, we are given the right to eat of the tree of life. And we'll be eternity, being alive, in peace, and joy. And we are done at the moment, so let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for just your love, your care for us, and, and just showing us what we are to do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.